Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Now, how many of you have your Bible, iPhone, iPad, where you get your scripture? Just hold it up. Let me see it. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Oh, yeah, there you go. All right. Maybe brought your laptop. That's good. Well, I want you to, I want you to, take, your, I want you to take your scripture and open it to the seventh chapter of John, John chapter 7. Now, I'm going to read these verses, and you're going to like these verses. They're really good. And uh, as all scripture is, but you, I want to show you how you often miss something in Bible study. And uh, beginning verse 37, let me just read this again. Uh, Morgan read, read it a moment ago, but on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams or rivers of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him, were going to receive. That's a great passage, and you look at it, and you say, man, that is really good. Uh, Jesus is offering to quench the thirst of the mind, the heart, the soul of individuals, and that's, that's, that's a good thing. But if you don't study the context of a passage, uh, you know, wh- who was it written to? What were the circumstances when, when uh, the passage was uh, was situated and when, when, when all took place in that passage. And, and if you, when you know that, these verses come alive. They just explode in your mind. And there's so much that you can learn from this. So let me give you a little bit of the context of the verses that we just read. If you go back to the second chapter, second verse of the seventh chapter of John, you'll find out it says, on the last and most important day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was, it was near. The Feast of Tabernacles was near. So we're talking about the last day, verse 37 says, verse 2 tells us it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Truth is, it's really hard to find out what all these feasts are about. Now, I'm, I'm not technologically uh, savvy, uh, but I had a hard time finding it. I went on the Internet. I typed in the Feast of Tabernacle, and it's sometimes called the Feast of Booths. Um, it, 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 listen, it was the favorite feast for the Jews. You need to know this was, this was like Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and Fourth of July all rolled into one week. And I mean, did they party? I mean, they were festive. They loved the excitement of that week. And, in fact, it, I, I was reading just a Jewish uh, writer this week, describing what took place, and he described the whole week. They almost didn't sleep for a week. I mean, they sang and danced and drank. and I mean, they just had, it's like a carnival atmosphere. It's just unbelievable, all the things that are in the Feast of the Tabernacle. It was such a special feast that sometimes in the Scripture it's just called the festival. Everybody knew what you were talking about. When they finished the Temple of Solomon, the first feast that was celebrated in Solomon's temple was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so that, that, that was the feast. Now, I, I, could t- I could tell you a lot of things about it. We don't have time to do that this morning because I know you're all, all anxious to get down to Chick-fil-A for lunch, and, and uh, so we're going to have to hurry to get, to get it all in. But let me just tell you, this was a feast for everybody. It was a feast for the wealthy, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan. It was a feast for everybody, the stranger. It was just an incredible time, and, and for the Jews, every adult male within 20 miles was required to attend. How about that for a attendance campaign? 
Yeah, they had to come. I mean, this was a special time, a, an incredible moment for them. Now, there was a particular ceremony that was, uh, that was uh, observed during this, and it happened every day. So let me just describe it briefly for you. A, a priest, perhaps a high priest, but certainly one of the priests in a white robe, would take uh, what the, most of the writers call a, a, a golden ewer. Now, we don't use that word ewer, but it's just a pitcher. So he took a, a golden pitcher, and he led a procession out of the temple area of Jerusalem, and they came down to the water gate. They went through the water gate and down to the pool of Siloam. When they got there, the priest dipped down and filled up that pitcher with that golden pitcher with water, and he led the procession back through the water gate to the temple. When they came to the water gate, the people recited together, chanted together, sang together, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy will you draw water from the well of salvation. And then they started singing the Hallel. Now, you have to understand, each of these days in this ceremony, they brought palm branches and willow branches, so they all had branches with leaves and, and, uh, that they could carry and, and wave, and, and so the, the people were celebrating with these branches and waving them, and as they came through the water gate, they began to quote the Hallel, sing the Hallel, actually, when it says uh, that praise God for He is good, they would shout and wave those branches. I mean, it was a festive, incredibly exciting time, and the procession would leave then into the temple area. And here's what would happen there. The priest would walk around the altar one time, and then there over the altar was a silver funnel. And uh, the funnel was pointed at the altar, and that priest would come with that pitcher of water, and he would pour water in that silver funnel, and it would burst out of the spout and cover the altar. It was an expression of an acted out prayer of thanksgiving to God because he'd given, the harvest had been collected and, and God had blessed them and there was more harvest to come. So it was an acted out prayer for more water, for more rain. It was also a reminder and a thanksgiving of the water that God provided in the wilderness when they came through the Red Sea out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land. It was an incredible moment when the water splashed on the altar, the people would shake those those flags, and, and they would roar like when the Falcons score touchdown or perhaps the Bulldogs or the, or the Yellow Jackets when they score. You, you've been there. There's just an eruption of whoo, big roar. Well, that's what they do. When that water splashed on the altar, they waved their branches. They cheered, shook them. I mean, it was a great time of celebration. Now, they did this every day for seven days. On the eighth day, now, that's the day that we have because the Scripture said that on, on the last and most important day of the festival, so now we're on the eighth day. On the eighth day, they did that ceremony again with two exceptions. Priests did lead the procession out through the water gate down to the pool of Siloam. He did dip down at the water. He did come back up through the water gate. They quoted Isaiah 12, 3. They sang the Hallel. They waved their flags, their, 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 their branches, and they cheered, and then they came to the altar. When they got to the altar, the priest on the eighth day walked around the altar seven times, uh, perhaps a reminder of the seven-fold circuit around Jericho when they were crossing into the Holy Land. Remember, the walls came tumbling down. But he walked seven times, 
And then he came to the silver funnel with that golden pitcher, and he turned to empty the water, and on the eighth day, there was no water in the pitcher. It was a reminder to the people that God's promise of a Messiah had not occurred. And instead of a roar and celebration, there was nothing but stillness and silence. And it was at that moment Jesus stood and he said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's, where, that's the context for that, an incredible moment. There was a, it was a dynamic moment for a proclamation. And the two words there, stood and cried, in verse 37, are key words because they are unusual words. They are dramatic words. They're words that troubled me for months because I couldn't figure out why, why those words were there. And, and, and there was, it just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But let me, let me tell you, the two words are stood and cried. Now, that's very, very significant. Do, do you remember when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5? It says, and when he had sat down, he delivered the sermon. You see, Jewish rabbis never stood to speak. They always sat down. In those days, the culture was nobody stood to make a public announcement or public proclamation except an emissary of Caesar or the governor, some, some prominent royal uh, proclamation to be made. And uh, no, nobody stood. And so in that quiet moment, when there's no celebration because in their eyes the Messiah had not come, Jesus stood up. Then he says he cried. Now, the word cried there is also a very unusual word. It only appears in the Gospel of John, nowhere else in the New Testament. It appears in the first chapter where it said that John the Baptist was in the wilderness and he cried, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and so on. That word is used. It's an an electric word. It's an exciting word. It means it, it has a great deal of enthusiasm and energy. It was a dramatic moment cried. It's an it's a emotional word. Then in, in chapter 11, when Jesus is standing at the grave of Lazarus, the scripture says that he, that he cried, Lazarus, come forth. Same word. Well, you know the electricity that came around Lazarus' resurrection. I mean, it was, an, it was not a calm moment. It was an exciting, dramatic moment. That's the word that is used here. Then it's used twice in this chapter of John. It represents an unusual thing. It represented a a dramatic moment. It represented a significant message that needed to be received. And it was a dynamic presentation in an unusual place. Don't you know the Pharisees loved it? I mean, he interrupted the ceremony. He, 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 He disturbed the service. That was a moment of silence and quietness. And Jesus stood and cried out, anyone's thirsty. Let him come to me. That's a dramatic, dramatic moment that we have. And then there there was a desperate need that he addressed. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, I want you to notice something about that statement. First of all, notice the universality of it. 
He said, if anyone is thirsty, anyone, anywhere, any place, any time, if you're thirsty, you can come to me and get drink. I'll quench that thirst. And then I want you to notice the absence of anything specific. He said, if anyone is thirsty, he didn't describe the thirst. He just said, if you're thirsty. In other words, what is the craving of your heart? What do you long for? Jesus said, whatever it is, I I can quench that thirst. I can provide that answer for you. Now, thirst is something we don't, we're not real familiar with here in the United States. Uh, Do you know the average American uses 160 gallons of water a day? Do you know that? Did you know in the rest of the world, the average is three gallons? Aren't we greedy? 50% of the water we use is to flush commodes. If you take a 10-minute shower, it, it takes 50 gallons. If you leave the faucet running while you brush your teeth, it's four gallons. I mean, we, we don't really have any concept. Now, the tragedy is, and this is, a little, this is extra, okay, just a little, uh, little uh, uh, trivia. Do you know the world's running out of water? We'll, we'll run out of water before we do oil. Los Angeles, for instance, has enough water in the Los Angeles basin to provide for one million people. There are 20 million people there today. And by 2020, there will be at least 22 million in the Los Angeles basin. Central Florida could well run out of water in the next five years. El Paso and San Antonio, Texas could run out of water in the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, water is scarce. You know, only, only 3% of the water that's in the world is for us to drink. 97% of it we can't drink. And 2% of that 3% is frozen. So actually, if you want to know the percentage of water available for human consumption, I, I, this is not going to be as dramatic if you couldn't look at it, I guess, but it's 0.007% of the water in the world. Now, water is very important to us. 60% of your body is water. 70% of your brain is water. 80% of your blood is water. So when we're talking about thirst, we're talking about something that is absolutely essential for your life and my life. And, uh, and we're running out of it. And, and, but Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty of anything, come to me and I'll give you water to drink. It's a, it's a wonderful a wonderful need that he addresses. It's a, it's a specific thing that he addresses when he tells us, if anyone is thirsty, whatever the craving of your heart. Thirst is the greatest craving of the human body. Now, in America, you'd think it'd be sex. It's thirst. You can't live over a week without water. You can live for many weeks without food, but you've got to have water. And, and Jesus, Jesus uses the thirst there just to say, whatever it is that's most significant for you, 
Whatever it is you're longing for, whatever it is you're, you, you're thirsting for, if you'll come to me, I'll satisfy that. Now, that's a tremendous, tremendous offer. He says, if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, come to me. Now, h- how do you do that? How do you, how do you come and drink? It's a fair question. Well, I love John because he's so simple. John says the way you come and drink is to believe. You you, you believe Christ. You trust Christ. That's how you receive this water. He says that he was speaking of the the Holy Spirit that was going to be given to them and uh, to, to those who believed, he said. So belief is the key. Your personal decision to follow Jesus Christ is the way you get the water to quench your thirst. That's what he's saying. Whatever it may be, and it's been that way down through the ages. Down through the ages, it's been that way. If you go to the book of First John, you'll find an interesting thing in the very first chapter of First John. The apostle John says something like this. That which we have seen with our very own eyes, which we have touched with our hands, which we've heard with our ears, which we've received, we declare to you. That's what he said. It's, it's like this book of 1 John was one of the last books written in the New Testament, and it's like John was passing the message to the martyrs of the second century. And he said as he passed that cup, this is something we've experienced. We've, we have taken the cup of Christ offered. We have drank from that cup. He has satisfied our thirst, and he passed it to the martyrs of the second century, those who died for their faith. And in their dying breaths, their message was, the cup is still full. The water is still available. Uh, you uh, just have to come and drink. And the martyrs took it. And at the end, in, in the end of that century, those, the martyrs passed it to the commentators of the third uh, century who wrote the great books about our faith, the great theologies and the great uh, testimonies of our faith in the third century. And as they lay their pens down, their testimony was the cup is still full. They passed it into the 4th century, and there was a little Catholic monk by the name of Augustine. Augustine took that cup, and he drank, and his soul was satisfied, and his, his life was transformed, and he passed it into the dark ages where the, much of the Word of God and the testimony of God went underground, and it couldn't be found and couldn't be heard, but some still existed until it came down through those ages to a little monk named Martin Luther. Martin Luther bounded by his fears. He was so depressed and under such deep despair that he felt like he was being hounded by demons. There were bats in the room in the castle where he was staying, and they dropped acorns and he thought demons were assaulting him, and he could not believe that he could ever do enough to get God's grace and to, to be good enough for salvation. And until one day he read in Romans, the just shall live by faith. And that day Martin Luther took that cup, and he drank it, and his soul was satisfied, and he passed it to John Calvin and said, John, it's, it's a funny thing. The more you drink, the more there is. And he passed it to John Calvin, who took it and, and, and drank that cup and passed it to John Knox of Scotland, who once cried to God, Oh, God, give me Scotland or I die. John Knox took that cup and he drank it, and his soul was refreshed and satisfied. His life was changed and saved, and he lived in the light of the forgiveness of God's living water that came to dwell within him. He passed it on to Cromwell and the Puritans and to Smith and the Separatists. They took that 
cup and they drank that water and they carried that message across the Atlantic Ocean until it landed on the eastern seaboard of the United States and up and down the coast of the eastern seaboard. The word of God spread mightily and the message of the living water was very clear and very positive. Even in the harbors in South Carolina, the stories are of ships that would sail into the harbor of that, of that uh, city and just coming into the harbor, the Holy Spirit was so great that they would be calling for ministers to come and, and to share with the people on board that ship when they docked. It was such a powerful thing, swept up and down the east coast. Then it jumped the Appalachian Mountains. And it went west in the frontier revivals till over 70 years ago. It came to the back porch of a little parsonage in Arkansas. And a little boy there took that cup and drank. And I'm here to testify. I was that little boy and the cup is still full. It's still full. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Tell you, I get thirsty preaching this. Keith, you got some water there? <laughs> oh, man. It's a thirsty sermon, I'll tell you. Y'all thirsty? Let, let's have a drink, okay? Did you enjoy that? Oh, well, let's try it again. Now, how about that? No good? Hey, here's the truth about that living water. Listen carefully. Nobody can drink it for you. Nobody can drink it for you. Not your mama, not your daddy, not your brother, sister, cousin. Nobody can drink it for you. Number two, nobody can keep you from drinking it. You can do it. The word is nigh you, even in your mouth. The word of faith, he told, Paul told the Romans. That whoever confesses that Jesus is Lord will be saved, calls upon him, will be saved. The water is available, but the requirement is you have to come and drink. Can't get it by osmosis. Can't get it by uh, satellite. You can't get it by, by anything except coming in simple faith to believe the promise of Christ and come and drink. And when you do, you'll find that Jesus quenches the thirst of your heart. Now, there is a dramatic promise that these verses give for us. Most of us here have, have been made that journey to drink living water. An incredible thing. And so we're the church. This, this is God's flock, God's family. Now, listen, listen carefully. The purpose in salvation is not for you to enjoy it. God didn't save you so you could relish being saved. He didn't save you to take you to heaven. If that was the purpose of our salvation, when we got saved, we go to heaven. We're still here. Why are we here? Because the purpose of the church is to become a distributor of the living water that Jesus offers so that all can hear and have the offer of, of the thirst of their soul being quenched through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and through the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. That's what the church exists to do. Now, if you do that and you're doing a great job, I, every week we've had reports of, 
of people in mission activities, some in China right now. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of wonderful things, but that's what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do. There are two bodies of water in the uh, Holy Land. One's the Sea of Galilee, the other's the Dead Sea. Now, there are other smaller lakes, bodies of water, but those two, but interesting thing, listen, listen carefully now. The interesting thing is that the same water is in both of them. The Sea of Galilee is vibrant, over 600 feet deep. It's a living, uh, a living body of water. And if you see the green things that are growing across the land of Israel, it's because they piped water from the Sea of Galilee. It has fish abundantly. It is a wonderful living body of water. Now you go down the Jordan River. It flows out of the southeast end of the Sea of Galilee. If you're on a crow's back, it's about 75 miles. If you're in a canoe, it's about 200 miles. You get down to the Dead Sea, and there it is, beautiful body of water, clear, crystal clear. But it, it's dead. Nothing lives in it. The mineral content is so thick that you could sit up in it and read a newspaper and not get the newspaper wet. I mean, your body, you can't, you can't sink in it. And yet, the same water that's in the Dead Sea is in the Sea of Galilee. What's the difference? Sea of Galilee receives water from the northwest end of, of the lake, from the mountains of Lebanon. There were spring rains and the winter snows as they thaw, and it comes into the Sea of Galilee. It replenishes, refreshes the Sea of Galilee. Out of the southeast end, water goes into the Jordan River. The Sea of Galilee receives and gives. It receives and gives. And it lives. Now, the Dead Sea, same water. It receives and receives, never gives, and it dies. God gives us living water to quench the thirst of our hearts and souls, but he gives it to us in order that we might become distributors of it to everyone that we can possibly reach. High in the Andes Mountains, way up above the frost line, the freeze line, where the ice and snow never really melts like you would have seen it when snow and ice comes here and then it melts. If you're up there above that frost line and and look at an ice-clad rock, you may see a little gurgle of water, a little drop of water, trace a hesitant course across the face of that rock. It gets down to the bottom of that rock, behind that ice now, ice has never melted, and it joins other little gurgles and little drops of water. And they flow together until they become little rivulets and little streams until 3,600 miles later, the Amazon River flows into the Atlantic Ocean at a rate of 180,000 cubic feet per second. It is such a powerful force flowing into the Atlantic Ocean that the Atlantic Ocean is fresh water for 60 miles. Now, that's a picture of what the church ought to be. Sure, we live in a pagan world. 
Sure, we live in a crumbling society. Sure, we live with problems everywhere, violence around us, immorality. Sure, we live in a time where people laugh at Christ and and don't want to hear about God. Sure, there's so much in our culture that would turn people away. But that's what the church is here for. We're to flow into that society like the Amazon River into the Atlantic Ocean and purify, cleanse everything that we touch. Now, some scholars are a little frustrated because they, it says, as the Scripture says, as the Scripture says there, uh, the, these streams of living water. Well, there's no Scripture that says that, just that way. So some people get distressed over that, but I think it's talking about, uh, about Ezekiel 47. The picture in Ezekiel 47 is of the throne of God, and the water flows from underneath the throne. First it's ankle deep, and then knee deep, and then thigh deep, and then chest deep, and finally you're just deep enough you have to swim in it. Verse 9, Ezekiel 47 says, Everything lives wherever the river flows. That's what the church is about. That's what we're to do. Our part, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and and drink of the water by faith. Take what he offers. He'll quench the thirst of your soul for forgiveness, for wisdom, for for, uh, the the answer to despair and depression and, and, and for wisdom and for significance. All the things that we crave, he satisfies that need. And then we who've received it are to become distributors of that water. That's what the church supposed to be. My appeal to you is very simple. If you've never, if you've never come to Jesus to have your thirst quenched, you're still away from God, you don't know much about all of this, but you know there's a longing in your heart that you haven't had satisfied, come by faith to Christ. He offers you. He says, come. If you're thirsty, come. Come. And he will save you. He will plant his life in you, his living water in you. And if you've done that, Continually come to him and build your relationship with him. Participate and minister through the life of your church so that this church joins with many others to become distributors, the living water across this land, around the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you that you give such a wonderful promise to us. Of course we're thirsty. There's a driving desire in our hearts for so many things and some some particular things uh, we crave and yet lord we can't find the answer in this world in our own initiative in in our own circumstances our own uh, energies lord you say if you're thirsty come to me and drink and i will satisfy the longing of your heart father may that be our prayer to you lord We come to you, we receive your living water, and we receive the satisfaction of the passion and thirst of our soul. Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.